This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We have a special all-interview episode for you today where Jeff and I sat down for a long conversation with Jeff Frieden, who is a government professor at Harvard, whose research focuses on the politics of currency exchange, specifically the impact of domestic currency fluctuation on both domestic politics and foreign policy for individual nations, and we cross over into a little bit of U.S. currency history. Absolutely. It was a fun time to explore the panic of 1837 and other relating financial panics of American history and how that has evidenced in numismatic items. So we had a blast and hope you enjoy exploring this little different area of the hobby as it ties into a broader economic meaning. Here it is. We are joined by Dr. Jeffrey Frieden. He is a professor of government at Harvard University and the author of the book Currency Politics, The Political Economy of Exchange Rate Policy. We thought that if we're going to be talking about money all day, we should probably talk to a true expert and talk about currency exchange rates and things, things like that. So thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. First and foremost, in your book, you talk about the relationship between domestic currency stability and domestic prices and the degree of pass-through that global trade has on that stability and how that stability can impact global trade. What facets of that research and of that sort of schema do you find to be the most potent in terms of having an effect on public policy? Well, I think it depends by country, but generally speaking, in today's world, which is quite tightly integrated, there's, you know, most countries are well tied into the world trade system, international finance, international investment. So in today's world, in most countries, you really can't separate domestic monetary conditions from international monetary conditions. And perhaps the best example of this is one that keeps coming up over and over and over again and, and has for the last, you know, few years, which is that if a country, and typically it would be the monetary authorities like the central bank, pursues very expansive policies, that it lowers interest rates in an attempt to stimulate the economy, it will in, almost inevitably also lead to a depreciation of the currency. And so, for example, when President Trump complains about the Europeans engaging in currency manipulation because the euro is too weak and he thinks that's bad because it gives Europeans an unfair advantage in the American market and international markets. When he complains about the Europeans manipulating their currency, what they're doing is what he would like the Fed to do, which is lowering interest rates, because when they lower interest rates, the euro goes down in value. Right? So the, I think the single most important connection that very few, very little of the public discussion actually recognizes is that domestic monetary policy in almost all instances has a direct and immediate impact on the value of your currency. If the Fed tightens, the dollar strengthens. If the Fed loosens, the dollar weakens. 
and that's true pretty much for every country except for places like North Korea that really aren't integrated into the world economy. In our current political moment, though, it feels as though the Fed is something of a political football. There's, it seems as though there's kind of a populist backlash against a lot of the policies that it promulgates. And it seems as though there's, I mean, there's likely a fairly significant degree of misunderstanding of what exactly the Fed does. But it seems as though a lot of the sort of right-wing elements, especially in this country, sort of rail against it as a sort of tool of the elites. And, and sort of, you know, faceless bankers controlling monetary policy, etc. In any way, do you see this as a contemporary analog of the debates and discussions that were being had in the mid to late 19th century about the role of the gold standard and then the free silver movement as a populist backlash? Is there a parallel in that historical example to our current moment with the Fed? There absolutely is a parallel. In general, speaking of countries in general, the central bank is almost always the topic of lots and lots of controversy. And the simple reason is that monetary policy is, along with fiscal policy, the single most important tool of macroeconomic policy for pretty much any government. So if you don't like what's happening in the economy and with macroeconomic policy, the central bank is an easy target. But to, specifically to your point, populist or more whatever you want to call populist, but populist resentment of and opposition to the Fed goes back to the founding of the Republic. One of the biggest issues that was argued about in 1789 was should the country have a central bank with Alexander Hamilton arguing in favor and Thomas Jefferson arguing against. Hamilton won that argument, at least in the first instance, and we had a central bank, the so-called first bank of the United States, then which was called the Bank of the United States because they didn't know there was going to be a second, um, the Bank of the United States, which was effectively a central bank in the United States from 1789 until 1812, when under populist pressure, Congress decided not to renew its charter. So then we had no central bank. Very poorly chosen date because, as you may recall, in 1812, the War of 1812 began, and the War of 1812 was fought when the country didn't have a central bank and therefore couldn't do things like print money to finance the war, and it contributed to our having lost the War of 1812 effectively. After that, there was a new central bank proposed, and in 1816, the second bank of the United States was set up as a central bank. It operated for almost 20 years until in the early 1830s, it came under massive attack by the then populists led by Andrew Jackson. And when Andrew Jackson became president, he refused to recharter the central bank, the second bank in the United States. It was not rechartered, so we were again without a central bank. That led to a huge boom in state borrowing, which ended up with a, a terrible debt crisis in the early 1840s, where many of our states defaulted on their debts, especially to foreigners. So from the beginning of the first bank in the United States, the second bank in the United States came into continual pressure uh, and eventually were eliminated by populist pressures at the time. Then we go into this post-Civil War period, and again, we don't have a central bank until uh, until the Fed is set up, but from the 1840s, 50s, all through to World War One, and especially in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s, in the last part of the 19th century, there is constant pressure and constant political battle 
over monetary policy. Again, not, not the central bank because there was no central bank, but monetary policy. At that point, the monetary policy was carried out by what was called the independent treasury, which was just the treasury department. The debates there were, should we go back to gold because we went off of the gold standard during the Civil War? Should we go back to gold? If so, at what rate? And then once we did go back to gold in 1879, should we stay on gold? And the populists or the, the functional equivalent of the populace then were arguing against going back to gold and against staying on gold. So there are direct connections. And you may recall that the Tea Party movement and others um, of their ilk, starting in around 2010, 11, 12, through the Trump campaign in 2016, uh, were very explicit about uh, one of their heroes being Andrew Jackson. I have a poster somewhere that actually draws a direct connection saying Andrew Jackson was the first populist president and he took on the central bank of the day and we need to we need another Andrew Jackson to take on the central bank. So the controversies have continued, as I say, largely because monetary policy affects pretty much everyone and as in all almost all other economic policies even if it might be good for the country as a whole, a particular policy, it's going to create winners and losers. And the people who are losing from or feel they're losing from the monetary policy in question uh, are going to complain about it. It's interesting to note that during the presidential campaign, during the Tea Party movement and presidential campaign, the principal complaint about the Fed coming from the right was that it was too loose, that is, interest rates were too low. And there were many instances in which candidates, including Donald Trump, complained that the Fed was killing retirees and, and, and other savers because interest rates were so low. That makes some sense because the Tea Party movement got a lot of its support from people who were over the age of 60. I mean, that, demographically, the surveys indicate that. And retirees are very sensitive to interest rates. If you're used to earning 6 7 8% on your retirement savings and all of a sudden you're earning 2%, you're being squeezed. So during the campaign, from really from 2010 to, through 2016, the complaint was the Fed was too loose. Now, in office, President Trump complains that the Fed is too tight because he thinks it's restraining economic growth. So the Fed is always a target, whether you think it's too loose or too tight. Typically, the left usually argues that the Fed is too tight because the left is very sensitive to, to unemployment. And the right usually argues that the Fed is too loose because the right tends to be sensitive to inflation. Either way, the Fed is a great scapegoat, a great target, and an almost continual target of political uh, political friction and political controversy. So I want to look through things backward again. Tip O'Neill is credited with saying that all politics is local. I would like to think that all numismatics is political. And some of the <laughs> some of the events that you described, what's what's going to be of interest to collectors especially, the era of hard times, the panic of 1837, that Jacksonian debate led to a flourish of satirical medals, tokens, pieces that were used to wage the war uh, against the bank or to wage the war against Jackson, we had a similar amount of the issuance of propaganda pieces, as it were, with the 16 to 1 silver-gold ratio, William Jennings Bryan, Cross of Gold in the 1890s. Have you explored any of that as part of your broader research, just aware of it and making the connection with the broader landscape? Well, absolutely. Those are central to 
some of the work that I've done, the historical work. I've worked uh, both on contemporary currency issues like the euro and things like that, but, but, but in some sense my first passion is for the historical episodes um, because I think they tell us so much about the politics and economics of money and of monetary policy and of currencies. So there are a number of things, and again, I'm, I'm not an expert in the numismatic aspect of this, but once the second bank was not rechartered, it essentially allowed states to charter their own banks to issue banknotes that were backed by the state governments, typically because they held state debts. And so what you found in that period, as, as you and some of your listeners may know, was a flourishing in what were called bank reporters because a banknote issued by a bank in New York State was a dollar on the dollar, or roughly so. A banknote issued by a bank in, say, Mississippi which was known for being unreliably politi unreliable politically, fiscally, monetarily, might be trading at 40 cents on the dollar. And so if you were a, a, a merchant anywhere in the country and someone passed you a banknote, which we, we would think of as currency, you had to look and see, well, is this a Mississippi dollar, which is only worth 40 cents, or is it an Illinois dollar, which is worth 70 cents, or a Michigan dollar, which is worth 80 cents, or is it a New York dollar or a Massachusetts dollar, which are worth a dollar? So there's that whole period in the 1830s, 40s, uh, where, where you have circulating media with, called dollars, which are not worth a dollar. Then after the currencies unified during the Civil War, after the National Bank Act, the massive controversy erupts once the war is over about what to do. We're on a paper currency, what we call a fiat currency, that is paper currency not backed by gold or silver, massive debates. They go on for 15 years until finally the pro-gold forces win, even though they never, got a, in, you know, they never got a true majority in a sitting Congress, but they were able to win. We went back to gold in 1879, and from that moment on, the question was, are we going to stay on gold? And that, that became, in some way, the stimulus to what historians regard as the first real mass movement in American politics, the, the populist party or the people's party, as it was called, and the populist movement for to have us go to silver at 16 to 1. And so I can think of there being a couple of ways that would might matter for someone who was interested in, in collecting in this period. The one is, as you say, the medals and propaganda that, that were issued. But the second is the direct effect on the kinds of currencies that are issued. Do we have fiat? Do we have paper currency? What kind of paper currency? Is it backed by uh, a circulating by, by specie, by precious metals? Um, is silver in circulation? Is gold in circulation? Are they both in circulation at the same time? All of these things which affect I think should affect the supply of coins into the collecting community were at their origin fundamentally affected by the monetary and currency policy of the government in question. Oh, sure. The, uh, the Bland-Allison Act is what gave life to the Morgan dollar, and that was to answer the silver interest out west who wanted to Absolutely. create a yeah. usage for their product that they were mining. And, and, you know, thankfully for collectors today, the demand didn't exist. And, you know, millions of these just went into government vaults and sat there for almost a century in many cases. Right, right. So that's exactly right, because whether a uh, coin made of precious metal is going to circulate or not depends on its value at the mint and its value in the market, right? Um, so absolutely. There are times, if you look around the world, there are times when countries say they're on a bimetallic standard, they're both gold and silver. 
silver, but because of the way they value the two metals, one of the two disappears from circulation and the other one takes over, right? And so that we've had that experience in the U.S. And we, of course, and we even had the experience much more recently where we did have under, under statute a uh, circulating medium, the dollar, that could be exchanged for precious metal silver. Silver certificates circulated until, I think, the early 1970s. And, of course, what killed them, what made them impractical, was that the market price of silver was substantially higher than the mint price. So if you were, like me, a kid in New York City at the time, um, you could go through your parents' wallets and take out all the silver certificates, take them down to the U.S. assay office on South Street in lower Manhattan, turn each silver certificate into a little plasticine packet of silver, and then walk around the corner to a jeweler who would pay you a dollar thirty for your dollar's worth of silver. <laughs> oh, for a, for an industrious kid, that could end up being better than a paper yeah, route. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So we do for thirty cents. <laughs> well, that was that probably bought something back then. Um, it did. It did. That's true. <laughs> um, I'm not sure exactly when it ended. I think I think it ended um, in sixty. In the mid-60s, anyway. I was you know, very young at the time. I, I th- we officially went off the gold center in 71. I want to say that that redemption of notes ceased in six, between 68 and 71. That's that's yeah. that's as precise that's, as I can get. So that's, That sounds about right, yeah, because I, I, I think I was sort of in, in 10 or so. Right, right. That's a little bit older than that. So, yeah, well, we went off – so, but re- remember, we went off gold in 71 with the Nixon shocks, with the end of the Bretton Woods period. But long before then, the government was not redeeming notes for, for gold to American citizens. So there wasn't, we didn't have monetary, it wasn't like being on the gold standard. It was a very modified form of the gold standard that we had after World War II. Well, and that's, I mean, that goes back to FDR in 1933, and there's, you know, the, the, that led to the, the, probably the most famous incident in numismatics, the 1933 double eagle, $20 gold coin of which, you know, none are... Technically illegal gold coins. Uh, and and there's right. been, you know, some research by uh, Roger Burdett that suggests there was a, a very small window in which they could have been exchanged legally. And, you know, the, the court cases have um, filled the headlines, certainly in coin world, for the last two decades as these items have popped up into the marketplace and been turned over to the mint and all that. So it's, it's a... It, it's all... This all intersects, and that's why... Uh, you know, we're talking to you today. And Absolutely. Well, they, they, I'm, I'm just on the 30s, this is an example of what you were saying, of what you were asking about before and what we were saying before. The U.S. went off gold uh, in 1933-34. And again, as you know, and as all your listeners, I'm sure know because of this thing, of this, the, gold, the gold coins, which I don't know anything about, but from a, an, a political and economic standpoint, the U.S. went off gold as a way of trying to stimulate the economy during the depths of the Great Depression, and actually did so very successfully. Going off gold and depreciating the dollar had an immediate impact on stopping the deflation and reversing course in economic policy. There's been a ton of work showing. I mean, actually, if you think internationally, the earlier countries went off the gold standard in the early 1930s, the faster they recovered. We were among the last to go off the gold standard, which is one of the reasons why our our Great Depression was larger than a lot of other developed countries. And, and almost immediately, it led to a recovery of economic activity. So the connection between being on gold and having gold coins circulating on the one hand and being off gold and depreciating the currency and monetary policy, which is meant to stimulate the economy, is, was very striking in that instance. 
During each of these periods, whether it's economic contraction, whether it's sort of legal obscurity about the the status of certain paper currencies or sort of co-circulating coinage, whatever the issue might be, in the pockets of consumers and in small towns and large cities everywhere across the country, there tend to be, Jeff alluded to the Brian dollars and you have um, hobo nickels that were carved during the 1930s, you know, by either vagrants or artists who wanted to create folk art. You have all of the tokens that emerged in the 1830s during the hard times period. Popular backlash against, you know, economic contraction or against at least perceived failures on the part of the government to create a stable currency regime tend to take the form of, of satirical objects and, and tokens and medals and things. On an international level, does something similar happen and does political backlash against you know, government and currency failures, does that manifest itself differently in an international context than it does domestically in the United States? And if it does, why? Well, so first of all, I would say in almost every country in the world, every country I can think of uh, and, and have looked at, there is a division over monetary policy, monetary and currency policy. And, you know, this is very, very broad brushstroke. But generally speaking, you have hard money people who think that monetary policy should be tighter, interest rates should be higher, they're worried about inflation, they're worried about uh, the erosion of the purchasing power of the currency. And then you have soft money people who think that interest rates should be lower, monetary policy should be easier, they're worried about slow economic growth. And in some instances, you can think about different groups in society that, you, that would tend to be associated with hard money and soft money. Hard money, well, bankers like hard money, interest rates are high, savers, investors like hard money, and soft money, you would think people who own owe debts like soft money, like lower interest rates, workers who suffer most from unemployment tend to like uh, lower interest rates and, and, and softer money. And that's, that's true in almost every country you can look at. It was certainly true in the U.S. during the populist period. It was the big money centers, the commercial classes, uh, investors, the investing community that supported the gold standard, tended to support the gold standard, and it was debtors, workers, farmers who tended to support going off gold and, and, and adopting a softer monetary policy. So that that is a, uh, I would hesitate to say universal, but a nearly universal characteristic that there are these winners and losers, there's these supporters of different monetary policies. There's another aspect, you say, you say the international dimension, there are two ways to think about the international dimension. The first is, does it apply to various countries around the world? The second is, does it apply within the U.S., let's say, or any country, to both what's happening inside the country and to our relations with the rest of the world? And the answer is absolutely. And let's stick with the history and say, well, why was it that farmers were so adamant in the 1896 and several other elections, really from the late 1880s through to world, through to the 1930s, farmers were so hostile to the gold standard and so adamant about wanting us to be on its appreciated silver standard. The reason was that farm prices began declining dramatically in 1873, and they declined for almost 25 years through 1896. Not just farm prices, prices of all commodities, farm goods, um, uh, uh, raw materials, there's a big decline. A lot of that's driven by things like the, the steamship, the railroad, the opening up of the Great Plains, the prairies, the pampas of South America. So a flood of these raw materials and agricultural products onto the world market, and the prices of these goods are declining. So what do the farmers want? What they want is to prop up those prices. How do you prop up the price of, of the farm goods that we're exporting? Well, you depreciate the currency. 
if the dollar is worth less relative to the pound sterling, then you get more dollars for the wheat that you're selling or the cotton that you're selling or the tobacco that you're selling or the silver that you're selling than, than with a strong dollar. So the strong dollar was uh, the enemy of American farmers who were largely producing for export. And so the international component was that the, the, those who were suffering from international competition wanted a weaker dollar, and those who didn't care about that or who wanted cheap imports wanted a stronger dollar. There's a, uh, just as an example, virtually all of our competitors in farm goods in the late 19th century, that's Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, Russia, um, the, the big grain-producing countries, the, virtually all India, the big grain-producing, virtually all of our competitors in the world wheat market were on either silver or a paper currency. We're the only ones on gold. And so our farmers are at this big disadvantage because everybody else is using currencies that have depreciated 20, 30% against the dollar or, and against gold. And we're stuck with this very appreciated, very strong dollar, which makes American wheat more expensive on world markets. So speaking of currency wars, in a sense, American farmers said, we're in a currency war with Brazil and Russia and, uh, and India, and we're losing because we're stuck with gold. If we could only go on to silver like them, the playing field would be even. So the international component is, is straightforward. I should say, I know that a lot, sometimes people get confused about currency values and how they affect things. Perhaps an easy way to think about this is a 10% depreciation of your currency is the same thing as a 10% tariff and a 10% export subsidy, right? Because a 10% depreciation makes your goods 10% cheaper on world markets and makes foreign goods 10% more expensive on your market. So if you're selling into world markets or if you're competing with imports, you want depreciation. That was true then, and that's true now. When the dollar is strong, who complains? Farmers, manufacturers, right? Um, that's, that's the root of a lot of the complaints about the strong dollar today. They're coming from those who have to compete with foreigners on world markets for whom a strong dollar is harmful. So in some sense, both in the sort of contemporary incarnation of these debates and throughout history, in, purely in terms of currency stability, who was right? It seems though, you know, obviously that's sort of an asinine question insofar as it depends on where you stand. If you have one set of values and you're seeking one set of political and economic outcomes, you think one system is great and vice versa. But which of the two systems produced the greatest stability of currency and the greatest economic growth and overall economic stability? Well, so stability has many meanings. And, and the, way I'm, the way I would think about this is that if you – go on to a floating standard, which would have been the silver standard at the time, silver was floating against gold, or a paper currency standard, you get instability in the foreign exchanges, that is, in the price of your currency relative to other currencies, but it's easier to get domestic stability. That is, you, your government can respond to local conditions in a way that's appropriate for local conditions. If you're on the gold standard, Right? then your government can't respond. Then you have stability in the price of foreign exchange, foreign currency on the international exchanges, but the government loses the ability to respond to domestic macroeconomic conditions. And if you want a, a direct analog, the closest thing we have today to the gold standard is the euro. If you're Spain 
you have no control over your monetary policy, which is exactly what was the case if you were on gold. If you were on gold, essentially gold was your currency. Its price was set and it wasn't going to change. What that meant, like for Spain, so Spain found itself in a terrible, terrible recession, 25% unemployment, 50% youth unemployment, for reasons that had very little to do with what was going on in Spain. The textbook response would have been depreciate your currency and lower interest rates, but Spain couldn't do that. So on the one hand, Spain's membership in the euro gives it lots of stability with relations with its other European partners, makes it more attractive to invest in Spain, easier to travel, things like that. On the other hand, the Spanish government had lost a powerful tool of monetary policy. And I'll go back to what you said, or what we say in political economy, where you stand depends on where you sit. If you're more concerned about domestic monetary conditions and macroeconomic conditions broadly, then you want a currency standard which is going to allow you to vary your domestic monetary conditions in response to local conditions. And that would be off gold. If you think that what's most important is stabilizing the value and the cost of your relations with the rest of the world, then something like the gold standard is going to attract you. The way I would think about this, as is true in every, in life generally, but in every economic policy just about, there's a tradeoff. And the tradeoff here is on the one hand, you can have stability in the foreign exchanges, stability in the value of your currency. If you have stability in the value of your currency relative to other currencies, you give up monetary macroeconomic policy flexibility. Now, both of those things are good things. Stability is good. Flexibility is good. You can't have both at the same time. And that's why it's such a controversial issue. And that's why it was so controversial then. And it remains controversial now. Think of what's going on in Europe, where some countries in the Eurozone have decided to join the Euro, or some countries in the European Union have decided on the Euro, and others have stayed out. And even with Brexit, how important the connection is between Britain and the other countries in the European Union. So this question of how you value the tradeoff, is stability in your foreign exchange more important than domestic flexibility, depends a lot on what your economic activity is and what kind of country you are as well. Can we go back to the U.S. Uh, circa 1896 to 1906 uh, for a second? This is something that I was exposed to as a high schooler, and, and I wonder, I'm sure you're aware of this theory, and I, I want to share it with the listeners, that there's, a, um, there's some symbolism and meaning in The Wizard of Oz relating to this larger struggle between the Eastern bankers and the, and the Midwest and Western farmers. Is that something that holds up in, based yeah, on well, your research? There's been, there's been some controversy about it, but the general idea is that The Wizard of Oz was either conceived as or presented as a populist parable about the gold standard. So there are two interpreting. One is O-Z, Oz being like an ounce of gold. Yes. The other is O-Z being the letters after N-Y, which is the, was the center of the gold standard because it was the country's money center. Um, the Wizard is often thought of as being McKinley, who was the presidential candidate who won on behalf of the gold standard, promising all sorts of things that he couldn't actually deliver because the gold standard was flawed. In the original, the, uh, the and remember, there's a yellow brick road leading you to yes. salvation. Gold will take you to New York and to the wizard who will solve all your problems. There's, in the original book, Dorothy's slippers are silver. They changed that in the movie to, to be red, 
because silver didn't show up so so much on a color yep. screen. But in the original book, they were silver slippers, and as you will recall, just clicking those silver slippers was enough to get her back to Kansas and and a happy farm life. So there is a uh, a whole series of articles arguing for the interpretation of this as a populist parable. There are there's some who, who have doubts, but I tend to be on the side of those who think that it actually was. Frank Baum was a newspaper editor, the guy who wrote the Booster Vows, was a newspaper editor in the Great Plains, um, very conscious of this movement. This was, after all, this was undoubtedly the single most important economic policy issue for decades in the U.S. It led to third parties. There were four presidential campaigns fought about it. So everyone in the U.S. knew about the gold standard and the debates over the gold standard. So it, it would be, of course, Frank Baum, the author, knew about it. And, and again, uh, the, the interpretation is that aspects of The Wizard of Oz are hearkening back in a kind of, of parabolic way to the uh, or symbolic way to the gold the battle over the gold standard. Can I make one point about the gold standard because I don't Please. want to be misunderstood about something. I don't think that support for or opposition to gold historically has been an ideological thing. Um, I, I know that today there it, it tends support for the gold standard tends to be associated in the U.S. with with the right, but Milton Friedman was perhaps the strongest opponent, historically, I mean, he didn't live during the gold standard, but the strongest opponent of the gold standard, who in his canonical monetary history of the United States, uh, along with Anna Schwartz, argued that staying on the gold, going on to the gold standard and staying on the gold standard was a massive mistake that, that hampered economic growth in the U.S. for decades. So it's not an ideological thing. It's really about how important are these values that I was attaching to either being on or being off gold. Right. And I imagine that those two virtues appeal to different two different ideological stripes depending on some ways on how you value other things. So I imagine it interfaces with social issues, other economic issues, foreign policy. It probably intersects in a lot of interesting ways. Absolutely. So, and, and also in ways that vary by country, right? So, so the problems faced by a Belgium – are very different than the problems faced by the United States. Right? So, so yes, you're right. It, 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 currency, one of the reasons I'm fascinated by currency politics is that, for me, it is in some ways a summary statistic for lots and lots of political issues that are, are fought about in, in domestic politics and the political economy of countries and the international political economy and relations among countries around the world. It, it contains in it so much information about what people value, right? Um, I'll give you another example, if I may, which is think of a strong currency versus a, work, a weak currency. A strong currency has the uh, advantage of allowing you to buy more on world markets, so it increases the purchasing power of the currency. And if it's a fixed strong currency like the gold standard or the Bretton Woods system, it makes it easier to engage in international exchange. A weak currency means that you can buy less with your money on world markets, but it also means that foreign goods are more expensive. So in a sense, what you're trading off between a strong and a weak currency is purchasing power on the one hand, which you get with a strong currency, or competitiveness, which you get with a weak currency. Now, everybody likes both of those things. Some people like one more than the other. But what, current, what governments do about their currencies, to me at least, tells us something about which they value more. Right. And one contemporary critique of the weaker currency option would be that it's a form of protectionism. But right. so but then with being having been off the gold standard for decades now, precious metals are now being traded not so much as as backing for a currency, but they you know, a 
there a certain amount of currency will buy you a certain amount of an ounce of gold is you know thirteen fourteen or fifteen hundred dollars and silver's you know ten twenty dollars an ounce depending obviously on on external economic conditions so with precious metals being traded as commodities instead of the anchor for currencies as a commodity where do precious metals fit into the schema we talked about at the top of this which was talking about how you know, domestic currency policy and domestic prices interface with international economic conditions. Are precious metals just another commodity now? Or can they still be used as an effective anchor for currencies and against certain significant economic downturns? Well, the, the current version, leaving aside people who think we should go back to the gold standard, I can come back to that. But the current version, current equivalent of a gold standard is a fixed exchange rate, something like the euro. Either, either fixing your currency to another currency. There are a lot of countries that fix their currency to the U.S. dollar, and there, are, or even adopt the U.S. dollar. There are countries around the world that use the U.S. dollar, um, and then the extreme version would be the euro. That is adopting a common currency. That's the the contemporary version today of the gold standard, where you value stability of the currency over flexibility of monetary policy, as all of the members of the Eurozone have done. They said we care more about having a common currency than we do about having our own monetary policy. So the current version of the debate is not gold versus not gold. It's fixed rate versus floating rate. Do you fix your exchange rate? Uh, in that context, effectively, Gold and silver, other precious metals, are just commodities. They're commodities with a little bit of a twist, though, as I'm sure you know, which is that a lot of investors and others regard gold and silver as good hedges against inflation. Now, um, I think that you could make a similar argument for other commodities as well, but there are historical reasons, um, cultural and other reasons, why even small savers in some countries around the world think that if you're uncertain about the future, your best bet against instability is buying gold. That's not, because, again, as you said, that's not because gold is currency, but because gold is seen as a commodity whose value, because it's so scarce and so hard to mine, a commodity whose value is unlikely to fluctuate tremendously over time. Right. So if you if you thought of copper as a commodity along these lines, well, copper prices go up and down 30, 40, 50 percent a couple of years at a time. Gold prices tend, because the supply is not fixed but not, not very elastic, gold prices don't move around that much. So people regard gold as a hedge, but it's not money. And it, uh, frankly, I hate to say this to any of the gold bugs who may be listening, it's not going to be money. There are effectively no serious economists who believe in the gold standard today because what that does is tie a country's monetary policy to gold discoveries. And, and you know, modern economics understands, I think, the extraordinary power of monetary policy. And there are times when you want the government to be able to affect monetary conditions, which is impossible under the gold standard. So the, I think the simple answer, even though you may have noticed I don't give simple answers, but the simple answer to your question is gold and silver today are commodities. They're special kinds of commodities. Um, but the issues that the gold and silver standard debates took on in the 19th and early 20th century are still with us. They just take a different form. They're about fixing your exchange rate or allowing your exchange rate to float. 
Well, as you know, in a sense, life is not simple, so we need to explore these uh, avenues from all sides and think about them in a broader sense. That's why we have you here today. Let's close up with one final thought, springboarding on that. Collector coins then occupy a strange space between a fixed-price commodity and a more subjectively priced collector item. Where do such commodities exist in the schema that you describe? Well, if I, I don't think there are many people who would trade, who would use uh, Morgan dollar in circulation, right? So <laughs> coins that people collect have a value substantially greater than their value in circulation. Otherwise, they wouldn't be collectibles. So in a sense, I am somewhat interested. I had, as a teenager, I was a, I was a coin collector, and I think the fascination was to see the relationship between the currency, the coinage that was being issued at the time, and the events that were going on in, this, in, that, in that period, and, and what the, the value, the scarcity value of that particular coin reflected. It reflected debates between the populists and the supporters of the gold standard. It reflected the uh, rip-roaring inflation in Germany in the 1920s. It reflected all sorts of aspects of social, economic, and political life captured in uh, a coin. So, I, and, and that's, I think the value, the value of, of collectible coins, like of collectible anything, is in the eyes of the collector. It's not driven by the specie value, that is the value of the raw material itself. Um, so I think, to me, the point of contact or connection between collectible coins and currency and currency politics and monetary policy is that, to me at least, and maybe it's just because of my professional deformation, the looking at a coin, looking at a silver dollar, leads me to think about what was going on at the time. Why were silver dollars minted? What were the debates that were happening? Why did the government decide to bail out the silver miners in this way? And looking at instances in which gold disappears from circulation or gold, gold coins become incredibly rare leads me to say, well, what was going on that, that gold left circulation? Why did Newton make a mistake in 1717 in pricing, in pricing silver and gold, which drove, drove silver out of circulation in Britain, et cetera, et cetera? So to me, the connection is historical socioeconomic, political, it, it draws, it draws a, connect, a, a point of contact between this tangible thing, this coin, and the reality that people were living at the time. And that's a, that's a, that's a precious thing. Well, I think if we could all commodify or monetize that fascination, I think we'd all be millionaires. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, thank you so much, um, Dr. Frieden, for joining us. This has been a really wonderful conversation that I'm sure our listeners are really going to appreciate. So thank, thank you, you very much for your time. Pleasure. I appreciate it. All the best. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Jeff Frieden. It was interesting to see the different ways in which domestic currency fluctuations impacted U.S. politics and the sort of Physical reminders, uh, numismatists and ex-numists can collect to reflect on sort of our shared monetary history, and we hope that you found it interesting and relevant. And this is just one quick reminder to subscribe to the podcast however you get your podcast. Let your friends, family, and enemies know. We want them to come along on this journey with us. Until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by Amos Advantage.
your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on all orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today.